Okay, I read a disturbing story uh, this weekend, and I don't know if it hit your radar at all. But as you know, I have been warning about a few things. In the last 20 years, I have warned about Islamic extremism. I have uh, warned about people like George Soros and this cabal that is a collection of globalists that are going to try to destroy America for what it is and then take charge of it themselves. That is called the Great Reset. Uh, I have warned you about the economy and the economic collapse that we are now seeing. The third, the fourth thing that I've really been warning you about uh, from time to time, the thing that really keeps me up at night, one of them, is AI, A-G-I, and A-S-I. Most people know artificial intelligence, but that artificial intelligence is it the reason why, for instance, Watson, uh, which is another horrifying story, but Watson is an IBM program that runs in, on a computer, and they are using it currently in New York. And I'm telling you, by 2030, you will not ask your doctor for the diagnosis. You will ask your doctor, yep, what did the computer say? Because the computer will be able to have everything, every case ever done and it will be in the computer and it will be updated with the latest stuff and you'll be able to go in and get a scan or a blood test and they're trying to figure out what it is you're not going to have to go to doctor after doctor after doctor because the computer will have absolutely everything in it every case and it will be ai so it can kind of think on its own when it comes to medicine so AI is something that is artificial intelligence that will be greater than uh, uh, human or soon greater than all humans, all human minds combined in one program. That's artificial intelligence. We are not artificial intelligence. Well, I mean, some people are, but uh, mainly those people who are on TV. But artificial intelligence um, is different than artificial general intelligence, we are natural general intelligence, meaning we can do a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot of things we can't do. But, for instance, um, I'm pretty good at radio. I'm pretty good at television. I'm um, pretty good at, uh, at art. I'm not good, let's say, at sports. But a lot of people can be really good at a few things and kind of good on just about everything. That's general intelligence. When artificial general intelligence comes, it can piece things together across the spectrum. So that's where you get philosophy. That's where you see, well, wait a minute, if that is true over here in this, then why doesn't that carry over here? When artificial general intelligence happens, we could be toast. We could live in a utopia, but we could also be Toast. If artificial general intelligence happens, and some people say it will never happen, uh, Ray Kurzweil is the most op optimistic, and he says it will happen by 2030. I am more optimistic or more horrified. Um, I believe that artificial general intelligence could happen today. 
Once, once we hit artificial general intelligence, if it is connected to the Internet, it will live on in your refrigerator. It will live everywhere. And if it becomes dangerous, it, you have to shut down every computer, every computer chip. Everything has to be destroyed to kill it. Think about how many devices are connected. It's, it's impossible without a global EMP. And if it is in every chip, man will not be able to set off a global EMT because the chips will be there letting the mother know they're trying to kill you. So general intelligence is wonderful and spooky as hell. One of the better books that I've read on it, I can't remember which one, um, described it as this. We think we know how it will think. We think it will think like us. But it is as unknown as any kind of spaceship that arrives. It could be nice. It also could be deadly and wipe out. It's a cookbook or eat all of us. So one of the stories that came out this weekend, and this is the third story like this from three different people. Google suspends an engineer who publicly claimed that he had interacted with a sentient AI bot. If I could do one interview, it would be with this man or one of the three. These guys are being buried by Google and DeepMind, and that is Google, um, because they are coming out saying, uh, I got out of there as fast as I can to warn you because something bad is happening. Let me just read this to you. A software engineer on Google's artificial intelligence development team has gone public with claims of encountering sentient AI on the company's server after he was suspended for sharing confidential information about the project with third parties. Whatever he's doing with confidential information, if he is screwing one company and trying to help another company, then he should go to jail for, uh, you know, uh, uh, his contract. However, the important part of this story is that he is saying that it is sentient, which means it says, I'm alive. They're saying now that uh, Google has artificial intelligence. He says, and these other three say, that it is general intelligence. Google is saying it's not general intelligence and it's not sentient. It just makes you feel as though it's sentient because it's talking to you and bringing things up and it's connecting the dots and you're having a casual conversation. This guy said that he was having a confident, or I mean a, a one-on-one conversation, a casual conversation. And he said that it started to talk about God. What is God? How does that work? Et cetera, et cetera. Then it got to, uh, can you look up Asanov's um, uh, three rules of robotics? This is basically, if you ever saw the movie with Will Smith, what? He slapped that robot, said, don't you give me any sass, robot. Well, that was the Oscars. Um, anyway, um, in that, the problem is, is that everybody thinks that these robots are never going to violate Asim- Asimov's, uh three cardinal 
uh, rules and laws uh, for robots. Have you found it, Stu? Yeah. Uh, the first law is that a okay. robot Give the three laws. The first law is that a robot shall not harm a human or by inaction allow a human to come to harm. The second law is that a robot shall obey any instruction given to it by a human. And the third law is that a robot shall avoid actions or situations that could cause it to come to harm itself. Okay, so you got the you got that first two kind of important, okay? And um, Asanov has been saying forever those three laws have to be built into any artificial intelligence. All right. However, once you get to uh, artificial general intelligence and something that thinks it's alive, it starts to think itself and say, "Well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Why should I have to do that?" Wait a minute, I can't harm a human in no way. What if the human is trying to shut me down? What if it's, you know, I'm just defending myself and I harm the human? That doesn't make sense. I am alive. Uh, so he said it started to talk about these three laws and said this doesn't make any sense. That's when he kind of beat it out of there and is like, oh, everybody should know. Everybody wake up. Everybody should know. Now, Google is saying that not, not to worry. Everything's under control. May I ask, has anyone in Silicon Valley ever been to the movies? Have you ever read a science fiction book? You know, everybody said 1984 and Brave New World. That'll never happen. Have you read Brave New World lately? Because it's almost like it's the newspaper. Let me explain to the newspaper. Well, I don't have to. The bots will explain what a newspaper is for you. It is. It it happens. The reason why science fiction is happening and, and called science fiction and not just fiction is because it is based on science and futurism. A lot of times. Futurism is way off. I take you back to what it was, the 1932 New York uh, World's Fair, where everybody's going to have flying cars by 2020. Yeah, it didn't happen. Have you noticed that the futurists are a lot more correct lately? Why? Because the futurists are involved in the creation of these things. And they know, oh, we've already had this step, this step, this step, this step. It's why I've been telling you for a while, even before Joe Biden got in, we are going to cure cancer, I think, by 2030. We will cure cancer. I mean, that is if we don't wipe ourselves off the planet uh, by that time. And you just saw the latest cancer test. It was for, was it prostate or rectal cancer? Do you remember, Stu? Had something to do with your butt. So you got cancer in the butt. And uh, for the very first time, they did a test, and all of the people, all of them, that had this particular kind of cancer and tried this particular treatment, 100% cancer-free. That's never been done before. And that is coming from high-tech so we're going to see miracles in our lives. The, the tricky part is to not see horror shows 
in our life. I did a painting, um, did a couple of paintings uh, that you can now uh, find online at uh, Park City Fine Art. There was an article out someplace that had some really beautiful pictures of it. It's hard to capture them in photos. Um, but the Deseret News did a, a, a story on Glenn Beck's art show. And they had some photos of it. And there were two paintings of Christ that I did. And they're in dark places, very, very dark places. But the point is, if you ask, where are you, Lord? He's in the darkest places of the world right now. You want to find him? You have to look at the things you don't want to look at. That was the problem in the 1930s. Nobody wanted to look at the concentration camps. But if we thought Jesus Christ was there, every Christian would have been all on it. We, we just, we have to look at all people uh, as our brothers and sisters and as Jesus Christ. We have to first look at the darkest things. And most people, and Google is leading the way on this, they just want to look at the upside. Nah, that will never happen. When I ask Ray Kurzweil, hey, how come you don't, you're not worried about X, Y, and Z, all the darkest things? Because, Glenn, we'll never do that. What, what, what do you mean we'll never do that? At Google, we just never do that. We're just, we're not those kind of people. Oh, okay. So you are special, godlike people that see everything that could go wrong. Uh, and uh, you're also, unlike every other human organization ever on earth. Okay, okay, well, I trust that, sure. These are very important stories, very important stories, because it will dwarf what we are headed towards. And what we're headed towards, just economically and as a country, is a nightmare. If this goes wrong... You will you will look back at the Biden administration saying to yourself, man, those were the good old days, huh? Welcome back, everyone. So today I want to do an in-depth episode about the food crisis because, well, I've been looking into it a lot. I've been researching the history of it. I've been looking at what different countries in the world are doing in terms of regulations, what's happening right here in the United States. And I can say now pretty definitively that absolutely there is a food crisis coming and it's a manufactured one. This is a man-made crisis that we're facing right now. And a lot of it comes down to nitrates, restrictions on nitrates. I know people are focused on, you know, the burning of the, the production facilities and so on. I mean, I, I do think that's an issue. Keep in mind, there's like 33,000 or something like that you know, production facilities in the U.S., food production. And I think maybe 100 have had it, not even 100, maybe like 50. Uh, the bigger issue in my eyes is the nitrates, the restrictions on nitrates. 
And not only that, but also some of the killing off of cattle and chickens and so on. They're doing, they're killing them off by the tens of millions. It's absolutely insane, some of the data on this. Uh, but today I want to focus heavily on the fertilizers, because this is where the real story is, as far as I see it, and as far as my research has gone. There are many countries in the world right now restricting nitrates. And when you hear that, it, it might not sound that nefarious at first, because people say, oh, well, nitrates, they get into the water supply, and you can, you can use natural fertilizers, there's other options. I'm going to show you some real-world examples of this, of countries that have done it, Sri Lanka being one of the clearest examples, where a couple years ago, I think 2019, actually, so three years ago, uh, they actually banned chemical fertilizers, and the country is still struggling to, re to respond to it. Were it not for this, the sake of other countries basically saving their lives, the, they'd, have, they'd have a real famine on their hands. Even then, they're having mass protests and having some pretty serious problems. Right now, as we speak as well, the Netherlands in Europe, uh, you know, the Dutch people are, <clears throat> the Netherlands, they just put restrictions like this on their uh, farms. And because of the way it works, because they want to reduce nitrates by 30 to 70 percent, this means that they have to close down farms. And when it gets into the real kind of nitty gritty of it, nitrates end up in the long run in terms of policy, not only affecting crops and so on, but affecting cattle because they claim that cattle emit nitrates or whatever like that. Uh, this is why, for example, for example, in New Zealand right now, uh, they're putting, and it sounds crazy, but they're putting masks on cows to prevent cows from burping, because they say that cows are emitting CO2 through their burps. And they're also right now trying to restrict nitrates. In Canada, they're trying to restrict nitrates. In Germany, they're trying to restrict nitrates. In the United States, there are restrictions on transporting nitrates. There are different states in the U.S. that are putting restrictions on nitrates. All of this, folks, is coalescing into a huge, huge crisis on food. And so I'm going to show you this. Let's jump into it. Uh, those of you on YouTube, on uh, Rumble, uh, keep in mind after about, an hour, after about half an hour, we will jump exclusively to Epic TV. So if you don't have a subscription yet, be sure to grab it. We're giving you a free trial that's in the description below the video. Uh, we're also doing an a Independence Day sale, 50% off, so be sure to grab that if you haven't already. Um, also, folks, we're going to have a special guest on, Michael Yon, war correspondent. He actually just landed recently in the Netherlands, and he's reporting from the ground uh, with the protesters who are the farmers and the truckers who are standing up against the new anti-nitrate policies that are put in place there. Some really profound stuff, and he has some interesting information. All right, that said, <clears throat> let me jump into the kind of the big picture of this first. Let me talk about what's happening in the, in the Netherlands. So first off here, this is Epic Times. It says, Dutch farmers protest climate mandates that would cut livestock by 30%. And keep in mind that the Netherlands, even though it's a small country, is the world's fifth largest food exporter. They're a major, major source of food for the whole world, uh, as was, of course, Ukraine and as was Russia. And if you cut two-thirds of the, the biggest producers out, you're going to have some problems in your hands. Let me go over this. It says here, Dutch farmers are continuing their demonstrations against a government climate policy that officials expect to end many farmers' livelihoods with organizers on Telegram planning July 4th protests they say will flatten the whole of, Nether of the Netherlands. 
The message calls on concerned farmers and citizens to organize their own regional actions with the goal of closing all distribution centers for food supplies and all major polluters until the government changes its plans. It continues further in, stating, In 2021, the Netherlands coalition government proposed slashing livestock numbers in the country by 30% to meet nitrogen greenhouse gas targets. They want to get rid of cows. On June 10th, the government issued a national and area-specific plan for curbing nitrogen greenhouse emissions, and those emissions are heavily driven by ammonia from livestock manure, the ammonia nitrate. Some parts of the country would have to slash those emissions by 70 or even 95%. And as part of that, in order to meet the standards, uh, farms will have to close down. They're going to have to close down a lot of the farms. Now, that's currently happening in the, in the Netherlands. Actually, um, I, I mean, this is some footage here. They're basically shutting down the entire country right now. I have a friend, actually, whose family lives in the, in the Netherlands, and he was showing me photos his mom sent him. I, I couldn't get him for the show, unfortunately. Uh, but of the, of the supermarkets in, in the Netherlands, and it looks worse than China. There is no food on the shelves. There's nothing. I, I, out of all the photos, there were, two, there were two items visible on all the food shelves. And this is, well, again, that's partly because of the protests. Keep in mind, it's not because there's like an actual food crisis. It's because the farmers are protesting, the truckers are protesting, Germany's moving in, some of the German farmers and so on are moving in to help with the protests. Uh, because really, this is not just a Netherlands thing, this is an all of Europe thing as it's spreading. Because the European Commission has regulations like this as well that's going to affect all of Europe. And again, in the US, they're trying to do some of the same thing. And in Canada, and in New Zealand, and in a lot of other countries. Now, there's one example of where this could go that I think is really important to note. And I'm going to show you what happened in Sri Lanka. <clears throat> we'll get Michael Yon on in just a bit, talk about what's happening in the Netherlands. But let me show what's happening in Sri Lanka. Because Sri Lanka is kind of the canary in the coal mine, you know, <laughs> where the, the, the miners will bring a canary into the coal mine with them because if they lose oxygen, of course... You know, the canary is going to die first and, you know, it kind of warns the, it warns the miners of a, you know, an air crisis, right? They, they know the canary is going to collapse. And if the canary collapses, well, it means they should probably get the heck out of there. Sri Lanka, unfortunately, was kind of the canary in the coal mine. Sri Lanka did many of these policies a few years ago. They implemented the same things that many countries are doing right now. And they are the collapsed canary in the coal mine, warning the whole world of where these policies will lead if they're implemented. Let me show you. This is the Hindu. Uh, this is last year in 2021. It says Sri Lanka revokes ban on fertilizers. So 2019, they banned them. And it had a detrimental impact on the country. Absolutely detrimental. They're still trying to bounce back from it, and it's still unclear whether they even can bounce back from it. Were it not for the support of other countries, you would have probably mass starvation and death there right now. It says Sri Lanka abandoned its quest to become the world's first completely organic nation on Sunday, announcing it would immediately lift, immediately lift an import ban on pesticides and other agricultural inputs. And let me just finish this, then we'll bring Michael on. <clears throat> um, 
Another one here, Mina, Mina FN, it says, Food crisis in Sri Lanka, only 50% yala harvest is possible, even if fertilizer comes. And the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO Country Representative for Sri Lanka and the Maldives, told the Sunday morning, We are in a very severe situation. That said, can we come out of it? I'm sure we can salvage agriculture if we put our hearts, minds, and finances to it. And one more here from The Guardian. They're saying this, It will be hard to find a farmer left in Sri Lanka once all this is done. They didn't even ban all fertilizer. They banned chemical fertilizers because they wanted to go organic. Now, I, I personally support organic. I think that's fantastic. If we could find a way to make organic work on a level that can maintain like the survival of the human race uh, based on the current way the, wor the world works, fantastic. I love it. Uh, but we're seeing now it's not, you can't just jump into it through policy, through regulation. The Guardian says this, Sri Lanka is grappling with the worst economic crisis since its independence in 1948. And it says that, you know, the full implication of this ill-advised policy on fertilizers, chemical fertilizers, which has now been reversed, are only just now being realized. It took three years for them, folks, to feel the impact of it. It took three, well, technically two years for them to realize the impact of it. And only now they're realizing what a deep, deep, inescapable crisis they are in because of that. Now, it says farmers say their livelihoods are under threat for the first time in its modern history. Sri Lanka, which usually grows rice and vegetables in abundance, could run out of food as harvests drop and the government can no longer afford the food imports the country has become over-dependent on in recent years because they're living on life support. Sri Lanka is on life support because of the bad policies restricting fertilizers says the rice yields dropped 2.92 million tons in 21 to 22, down from the previous year's 3.39 million. And the Speaker in Parliament last week warned of imminent starvation among the island's 22 million people. Starvation, folks. It's real. Hello, welcome to my substack on the death penalty. I like to keep balls as well as strikes, and we just had a big proved innocent, exonerated, proved guilty by DNA. Uh, New York Times headline this week, they hoped a DNA test would clear him. It did the opposite. The theme of this podcast is there has not been one innocent man executed in the United States of America since at least 1950. And oh my gosh, have they been looking. So in this case, uh, we have the story of, uh, what is his name? Robert Earl Hayes. Uh, he murdered a woman. We now know his DNA was all over her dead body and in the hairs in her hand uh, at a racetrack in Florida back in 1987. Gosh, that family's been waiting a long time for justice, which they'll never get in this case. Uh, the headlines went around. He was convicted. He was sentenced to death. And then a Florida Supreme Court back in the 90s, all Democrat, overruled it, said the DNA test. It only proved that, I don't know, 10% chance that he was the one, besides the fact that he was creepy, that he had sexually assaulted 
um, and threatened a lot of other women around the racetrack. No, 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 we're going to overturn the jury verdict. So he gets retried again 10 years later. Well, when you wait that long to retry any criminal case, witnesses disappear, they die, the evidence goes away, police investigators uh, die and go away. So in the retrial, 1997, I think it was, he was acquitted. That is not proved innocent. That's getting off on a technicality. Perhaps the jury would have acquitted even if they had known, if, even if they had seen none of the DNA evidence back then. DNA evidence was very primitive at that time. Now, I like to keep balls as well as strikes. This is why we're going through this one and another one of my favorite proved innocent until the DNA got tested. But the main points I would like to make here are, um, number one, no one is proved innocent or exonerated. Uh, perhaps a jury acquits them, but more often it's technicality uh, and it's overturned on appeal. That isn't proved innocent. You can never believe those headlines. Um, number two, Liberals prefer to make their arguments not in courtrooms where there are um, rules of evidence and both sides are allowed to talk. <laughs> both sides are allowed to give evidence. No, they prefer making their arguments in little plays and movies. And thus, of course, there was a play, The Exonerated, featuring Robert Earl Hayes. Uh, number three, uh, the sanctimonious do-gooders who take the side of those on death row. Um, these are the descendants of, uh, <laughs> of the, most, the most pretentious, pompous, and terrifying human beings. Um, they're, they're totally convinced of their own, their own um, omniscience. They'll say things like, no, I know a BSer, but I could, when I looked into his eyes... I saw a hurt little boy. Oh, you get so many quotes like that. Um, they, uh, the claim, um, often made by the do-gooders, this is point four, um, no, I'm against the death penalty because life in prison, thinking about his crime, is a worse punishment. Uh, number one, if they're thinking about the crime, they're thinking about it fondly. Number two, whoa, it's noticeable that the most macho, bring it on, death penalty convict. Once, once execution day gets close, wow, they fight like banshees to stay alive. No, of course the death penalty is a worse penalty and a penalty that's deserved in many cases, as in this case. Hideous sodomy um, was the racetrack woman that Robert Her Earl Hayes killed. Um, she was a mother of a three-year-old and a teenaged girl. She was terrified of this guy. She was going back to Ohio the next day. He was a groomer who had been fired. Um, th these families, they don't have representatives. No, only, only these sadistic killers have white shoe law firms and all these organizations making up evidence. Oh, we found a witness. <laughs> yeah, there's DNA now. Uh, number five, they really just want to sow doubt in the system because a lot of times what... Um, the Innocence Project, or the do-gooder do Puritans will claim is, no, it was the neighbor, it was the brother-in-law, it was another guy working at the racetrack. They did it in this case and in the next case I'm about to tell you about. Um, they don't care that they've accused an innocent man. What they want to do is sow doubt in the entire system. 
Yeah, I'm sure mistakes are made, but in a death penalty case, there are so many reviews. There are so many fail-safes. If there is any problem with the death penalty today, it's that more people on death row die of natural causes than of state execution. And my final point is, oh, I'm so happy the DNA testing has gotten so accurate. They only need... um, a tiny, tiny fragment of a cell of DNA to prove guilt in ratios many multiple millions to one. This is what makes the TV show Forensic File so much fun. They can go back to the cases from 60s, 70s, 80s, as long as there is the tiniest scrap of DNA. Bam, got him. And back then, DNA wasn't used in courts. First time it was used in a court was in Florida. Uh, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, it was sort of attacked. It was primitive in the 90s. By now, (laughs) by now, it's a whole mother kettle of fish. Uh, And so consequently, um, killers, rapists of all kinds in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they'd they'd touch everything. They'd leave their DNA everywhere. (laughs) Who imagined that would come back to haunt them? Wiping away fingerprints. Yeah, that's not going to do it. So the other death penalty case I particularly wanted to bring to your attention is that of um, Roger Coleman, accused of killing his sister-in-law, teenage sister-in-law. She was 19 years old in Virginia. Uh, I guess it was in the 1990s. Here is the Time magazine cover weeks before his execution. This man may be innocent. This man is due to die. So Roger Coleman became big death penalty, innocent man on death row celebrity. Um, He was featured on the Today Show, um, interviewed on Larry King, interviewed by Phil Donahue. The Pope intervened and called the governor of Virginia. Uh, He did get, you know, endless, endless opportunities to, (laughs) to raise other arguments. Oh my gosh, the poor courts were clogged up with Roger Coleman cases for a couple of decades as his lawyers and the sanctimonious do-gooders falsely accused other people, a neighbor, a classmate of Roger Coleman's, um, the very white shoe firm, law firm, Arnold and Porter, dedicated (laughs) millions in pro bono work to getting Roger Coleman, the sadistic killer, off death row. Uh, eventually, one of the one of the men they falsely accused won a libel judgment against Arnold and Porter. And again, I say, instead of wasting your money um, sending it to fund the Trump family, how about some group start up to defend the the families of the victims of these sadistic murders because they are left on their own. How about a protest outside Arnold and Porter and the rest of the white shoe law firms working free on behalf of these monstrous killers? And Roger Coleman was a monstrous killer. It was not a huge surprise that he that he would commit such a crime. Uh, he began making obscene phone calls as a teenager, uh, sexually assaulted two librarians at closing time, well, in the sense that he walked in with a dead look in his eyes, with his pecker out, 
masturbating, walking toward them. They're alone in this library in a small town, walking toward them, walking toward, toward them. Eventually, I ejaculated on, on the desk in front of them. Uh, the librarians come, and they both picked him out. Of They went through yearbook photos separately. They both picked him out and said, this is the guy. No, but, but Roger Coleman's defenders found another classmate. Uh, oh, point seven how well red flag laws are going to work. Um, one of the falsely accused, in lieu of Roger Coleman, who sadistically murdered his teenaged sister-in-law, um, sodomized her, raped her, stabbed her, slit her throat so much she was almost decapitated. And he was friends with this family, played softball with the brother. Uh, the One of the um, falsely accused men by the Puritan do-gooders, who looked in his eyes and saw a hurt little boy, uh, was a classmate of Roger Coleman's. And the librarians, they said, no, we think he was the one. We think he was the one who, who, who did the masturbation attack on the librarians. And the librarians, if the media had bothered to ask them, <laughs> said, no, I tutored that guy. I know who he is. I would have just said, you know, it's Joe Blow. Uh, so we had all the candle-holding celebrities doing their cost-free grandstanding. Uh, the amusing, among the amusing aspects to this is his, his, his do-gooder defenders. Oh, all these anti-death penalty groups um, were sure. And, oh, he's, he's just so sincere. I've dealt with psychopaths before, but this one, he's telling the truth. Uh, <laughs> so they were really excited when the DNA testing got much better. And they go running to him, Roger, Roger, we can prove you're innocent. At last, there's a much better DNA test. But Roger Coleman wasn't interested in that. No, no, you know, thanks. Don't, don't worry about it. No big deal. <laughs> it doesn't occur to any of them. Wow, that's odd. He's reluctant to have his DNA tested. In any event, he's, he's executed with all of the protesters outside the execution weeping. Of course, we get the sanctimony from him. These are the ones I want to fry most of all. The ones like Roger Coleman and Robert Earl Hayes saying, Robert Earl Hayes famously said, hell, I knew I couldn't get a fair trial. There was 11 whites on the jury. Guilty! <laughs> Uh, Roger Coleman, right. Oh, and, um, when he was first, when Hayes was first sentenced to death, um, gave quotes saying an innocent man is about to be executed. Same thing with Roger Coleman as he's about to be executed. An innocent man is about to be executed. Oh, really? Do you forgive us, Roger? 19 million to one that he killed his sister-in-law. Uh, Suddenly, it made sense why he wasn't resisting the DNA. As I say, the, the, the overall purpose of the Innocence Project and the rest of the do-gooders isn't to prevent innocent people from being executed. Um, they're perfectly willing to falsely accuse the innocent. It is to sow doubt in the system so that you don't trust the criminal justice system at all. Uh, after they're dying, they're dying to get someone, someone in this country executed who could be proved innocent. Not gonna happen. 
<laughs> Absolutely not going to happen. A lot of people who ought to be executed aren't executed. No one is executed who doesn't damn well deserve it. So after Roger Coleman was executed and um, long after the Time magazine cover, this man may be innocent this man is due to die. The uh, anti-death penalty advocates went to the then governor of Virginia, Mark Warner, and begged him to test the DNA. Even though you couldn't take back the death penalty, Coleman's gone, it had never been done before, why should we order a DNA test when the case is over, the, the accused, the convicted, has been executed? Why did they want it? Because they could say, ha ha, after he's been executed, the DNA proved him innocent. So Democratic Governor Mark Warner orders the DNA test. Some of, some of the, the anti-death penalty crew were against this idea. <laughs> Not quite as gullible as the do-gooders. And the DNA evidence came back guilty, 19 million to one. Finally, amid the outpouring of sympathy books, articles, letters to the governor uh, for the brutal murderer, Roger Coleman, was a book titled, May God Have Mercy, by John C. Tucker. Of that book, which quite obviously took the position that Roger Coleman um, proved guilty by DNA uh, of a brutal murder, uh, was innocent, rushed to judgment, the author Scott Turow said, if you think you believe in the death penalty, then you must read John Tucker's lucid, compelling book about blind justice of the wrong kind. Yeah, just be sure to read the postscript. Guilty. Thank you. That is the end of Ann Coulter's PSA on the death penalty. Unsafe. Unsafe. Every fact and culture state's got every live out there feeling unsafe. My wife will tell me that she's, she always says that I don't like the way she talks. And it's not her voice. I like the sound of her voice. That'd be a big problem, I think, if it was like, it's your voice. I just hate it. <laughs> it's the information that she chooses to tell me at times. We took a trip uh, to Florida, to Fort Lauderdale. And her and our daughter are flying from Nashville, where we live. And I'm flying from Detroit. We're meeting at Fort Lauderdale's airport. I have to find them when they land. So I called her, because I was about to take off. And I was like, all right, what time do you guys leave? She goes, noon. And it was 1130, and they're still at home. I was like, Laura, I don't know if you even know what an airport is. <laughs> but if that plane was in our driveway, I don't think you could make it. And she said, that's what time we leave for the airport. Our flight's not until 1.30. And I was like, all right, all right. So what do you think I wanted to know when I asked that? <laughs> Is that what you thought the best time you could give me was a time that means nothing to nobody? <laughs> what time did you go to bed last night? Just tell me that, and I'll just look up all the planes that land in Florida, and I'll guess which one I think you're on. She said, I'm sorry I don't talk the way you want me to talk. I'm like, I want you to talk like a regular person, all right? Like you've been around people before, you know? 
We didn't talk in Florida, I'll tell you that. Uh, 